Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. All right, welcome to another episode of the Wild and Exposed podcast. Uh, Ron, how's it going out there in Wyoming today? I had a much less interesting day than it sounds like you had today. But I will say, and I hope that by the time people listen to this, that things have changed a bit because society has lost their ever-loving mind. And even in the small towns, you can't get away from it. We've got U-Hauls coming up from Colorado to buy our toilet paper as the store stocks the shelves, and then they load it up and head back south. Really? So, (laughs) yeah, for real. Oh, my gosh. Yep. So you might want to start looking for U-Hauls on the corner because that's who's got all the TP. They've got the good stuff, too, (laughs) Charmin. (laughs) That's just crazy. Oh, man. So, yeah, it's been pretty slow. I've been going up in in the morning before work, uh, checking out the sharp tails to see if they've calmed down or kind of established the lack a little bit better. And then I went out actually this morning before daylight uh, to check out a sage grouse lek, and I just, from a distance, uh, glassed them just to see how many birds were on the lek. And there was only a couple. I don't think, and I've I've had a couple reports from friends that are a little bit further west of me. It doesn't sound like they are really at peak numbers or anywhere close to peak numbers. So I'm hoping things pick up on the sage grouse front as well, because the weather's starting to get nice and and kind of has that springtime feel to it so i'm anxious to get out i do know that uv kills the coronavirus so i think outside is the best place to be and i'm definitely practicing my social distancing when i'm out there i'm i'm looking to be out a lot here real soon yeah that's kind of all of our happy places right so we've been training for this our whole lives so absolutely (laughs) i know how about you um it's all good it's uh same as you guys, I haven't been out in the woods. I've been continuing to edit podcasts and watch the news. No, not watch too much news because I think they just overkill it all. But it's kind of crazy. I just heard today that, you know, there's a the potential of not being able to even go out of your house. Or, you know, you can go out of your house, of course, but they just don't want people out driving around. I mean, they're really putting the kibosh to this travel stuff. So, I'm a little concerned about actually meeting up with you guys in a couple of weeks if it gets to be too crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what did you say, Ron? What your requirements are if you if you travel? If we travel, there's a mandated 10 day self quarantine before and we that's come just, back to work. That's if you work, right? Yep. Yeah. So I think it, it varies by state and by you know your employer and so on and so forth. But Jason, yeah, will, you had well, speaking I of will, news. Yeah, You've had yeah, a heck yeah. of a day. <laughs> yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting one. So here in Utah, I heard some numbers. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I want to say something like two hundred and fifty percent above the panic buying. Um, Utah is so Utah. Uh, the rest of the country is panic buying for whatever reason, and I think a lot of it has to do with the whole quarantine idea, right? 
people are worried they're going to be stuck in their homes. They can't get out. They can't go get gas. They can't go get groceries or milk or whatever they need. So I think that's what's driving some of the panic buying. I'll never understand the toilet paper thing, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. So imagine Utah is 250% above the rest of the country when it comes to panic buying, right? Which just is insane. So on top of that, this morning, a little after seven o'clock, we had a 5.7 earthquake here in Utah. So I'm driving to work and I've, <laughs> I'm about 10 minutes out. And all of a sudden my car starts to like, sh like move to the side really hard, like the wind's blowing hard. And it's like doing it like, like consistent. And I'm kind of like, geez, where'd that come from? And I'm, you know, I'm not seeing any wind. I hadn't, there was hardly any wind blowing. So I'm, I don't understand. And then all of a sudden in the horizon, just out of about, you know, four or five miles, there's a big power plant and a gas plant in North Salt Lake. And all of a sudden I just see all these really bright lights and almost like, you know, lightning on the ground. And I was just real confused because I couldn't see the actual buildings in that. So I'm trying to figure out what's going on. So as I'm going by there, I'm trying to figure out, you know, hey, what the lights are all on, everything looks normal. So I just kind of forget about it and go to work and I get in the front. And as I'm walking up to the front door, uh, one of the other managers comes out and says, hey, everybody's out back. And I'm, why? Well, they've evacuated. Well, there was an earthquake, 5.7 earthquake. And then it clicked in my head. Ah, oh, that's what it was. I didn't realize it was an earthquake because I, you know, it's, it's in a car. Um, and then as we were standing out there, we all, you know, meet in the back and account for everybody. And long story short, we ended up sending everybody home for the day. And, uh, the, you know, most of us could work, a lot of the managers could work from home. So, but as we were standing there accounting for everybody, a, a aftershock hit and it was in the four point something range. And it was, it was pretty crazy. That's the first time I'd actually been standing on the ground and felt an earthquake. And, you know, it was rocking and rolling back and forth pretty good for about another 15 seconds or so. And then about one o'clock this afternoon, I was here at home and uh, on, a, on a conference call and another one hit. And they actually said this one wasn't an aftershock. It was actually another earthquake. And it was about a 4.5 or 4.6. And it was in a different location. It was about seven miles or about 10 miles away from the original earthquake this morning. So Where was the original one? Was that epicenter right in Salt Lake or was it up and down a fault line? up north or south or what was it it was in magna and i think it was just outside of magna about three miles is what if, if i remember correctly kind of that north salt lake area so you know living in utah my entire life i've never experienced that never had an earthquake happen that i could feel um, we've had multiple earthquakes in utah we live on a fault line but you know we don't have ones this bad except for maybe once every 10 years and generally not in a in a you know, up in this area, not in this populated area. Some, you know, a lot of times they're down south or further away from metropolitan areas. But so, yeah, kind of an interesting day. And of course, you can just imagine with the mindset we're already in, and then that just adds to it. So uh, it's been kind of a crazy day. If this is the predecessor to the Yellowstone earthquake, I just want to let everybody know it's been real. <laughs> yeah. It's been a slice. <laughs> it's been a slice. I've had a blast and. It's all good. No regrets. Enjoy. So yeah. they can't really predict earthquakes. I mean, they can kind of see seismic activity and stuff. Are they saying anything about, well, if it's going off here and there's another one here that we could even have another one? Or is there anything news like that? Or 
Yeah, I mean, they're basically, obviously, they try to predict what they can, but they, they really just can't predict them. You know, the bottom line is there's been lots of studies, lots of data gathering. Matter of fact, one of the main, well, I don't know what you call them, but earthquake tracking centers, whatever, is here at the U, at the University of Utah. And they're tracking earthquake or seismic activity across the entire world. So, yeah, they don't, they, they were on the news today and they basically say, you know, who knows? It could, we could have another one in a day. We could have another one in a week. We could have not have another one for another 10 years, whatever it might be. So it's really just kind of all up in the air. But they do expect some more aftershocks, they said, but I haven't felt any more since the one o'clock one. So, hmm. but pretty crazy. That is crazy. It's, uh, you know, that on top of the coronavirus, it's a weird day here in Colorado. You know, just you walk outside yeah. and normally you hear traffic and you'll hear just people. And you go out there in the evenings yes. now and you just don't, you hear stuff, but it's not like normal. It's just a different, yeah, different thing. I'm still working and I think we have some meetings at work to talk more about some remote working as the cases here in Utah continue to rise. But it's great. The traffic is super light. <laughs> there are some benefits, I guess, if you still have to be out and about. Um, but, you know, we're all here in more and more cities and more places. You know, all the restaurants here in Salt Lake Valley are all shut down, you know, mandated by the governor. Um, the schools are all shut down now, you know. So it's just like you said, it's a trickle effect. Everything, the dominoes are just starting to fall. And I'm just kind of wondering if we're going to get to the point where we are in some kind of a you know, quarantine situation or martial law of some kind where we all have to be inside. And thank goodness I have a good backlog of photos to edit. So I'll, I'll have some things to work on, but, and we can always do some podcasts, right? It's the perfect situation for podcasts. I mean, we're going to run out of stuff to talk about possibly, but man, we could just talk all day, every day. We could do yeah, our whole yeah. year's worth of podcasts in two weeks. Yeah. Huh? Well, I did talk with a buddy up in Alaska to today earlier, and he said that you know, you, you think of Alaska and especially living down here in the lower 48, you think it's just so far and so remote. And in reality, Anchorage is no different than any North American city. It's no different than Salt Lake. It's no different than Cheyenne. It's no different than any suburb of Denver. But he said it's just as crazy up there as it is here. He went to a grocery store and same deal. You just couldn't find anything. And... Um, People are doing the same thing. And up there, I think they worry about the big ships that bring stuff in. You know, are they going to run those ships? Yes. Because that, that could be a bigger problem. But he said all the ports are open. The Seattle ports are open and, and you know, Alaska ports are open. So it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. And that's the story I keep hearing on the news. The supply chain is fine. So you don't mm -hmm. have to get too crazy with this whole deal. You yeah. just have to be normal. There's no need to panic. That's the thing. I just yep. think we all just need to take a breath, settle down. <laughs> right. We'll get through this. Just the panic is what drives it and makes it worse. But we're going to start with pro tips today. You bet. Ron, I'll you want to start us? I'll kick or it off because mine's pretty simple, especially this time of year when, you know, the, the babies are about to start hatching, being born, that kind of thing. If you want to be a wildlife photographer, don't be out without your camera especially in the spring. I mean, there's, there's times in July and August when it's so hot that the animals are pretty much nocturnal or they're just dawn and dusk. You know, it's not necessarily the case, but this is a time of year where you want it. You don't know what you're going to see. You don't know what you're going to find. Some great opportunities. So just make sure you take your camera with you everywhere you go and have it ready. And your spouse, significant other might complain at some point, but it's okay. 
it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission in some cases, right? <laughs> well, I think what <laughs> that speaks to is today's world too. I mean, how are you going to get that viral video? But I still live by that. In fact, when I go visit my folks, they live about eight hours away from me. I load up so much stuff every time I go and I never use it, but I always have it, you know, because you just never know. I, can, I mean, it's a beautiful drive from Denver down to Southwest Colorado. You never know what you're going to see along the way. I mean, you're going over these big mountain passes. I see pronghorn. I see bears. I see coyotes. I see just all kinds of stuff. So wolves. Did you say wolves? I almost did, but I've never seen one. So I didn't <laughs> say it, but I know they're around, you know, just it would be great. That That's your viral you get a good shot of a wolf in Colorado, you're going to, it's like, it's second to a Bigfoot. Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, yeah, except I bet you at some point somebody's going to have an in-focus tack sharp picture of a wolf in Colorado. Bigfoot always seems to blur the image, so <laughs> I think you might have a better chance with the wolf. Yeah. You know, getting a sharp image. They've ran video of the wolves here in Colorado. So I know people have already shot it, but huh, well, that's a good one. I, I live by it. I still do. And, you know, a lot of times you can fall back on, you always have a camera if you have your phone with you, but it is yep. kind of nice to have that little bit bigger lens sometimes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I do the same thing. It's a, I learned the hard way multiple times. I, I do that a lot. I learned the hard way a lot. But, you know. Wasn't that what your pro tip's about <laughs> but, today? But let's do yours last because I think it's going to turn into a okay. big conversation. So my pro tip is uh, we talk a lot of, about video or I talk a lot about video. And the best way to get good video with today's cameras is to use neutral density to knock down the light that's hitting the sensor. Because you don't want to shoot video at 250th of a second. You want to shoot video at two times your frame rate. So if you're going to shoot at 24p or if you're going to shoot at 30p and you can set those settings in your camera. So if you're shooting at 30p, you want to shoot at a 60th of a second. Now, you don't have to. Your video will shoot no matter what you shoot it at. If you shoot it at 250, it's still going to be fine. But what's going to happen is it's going to be a crisper, more video camera type look. But if you want a look that looks more cinematic or a look that looks more like you would watch when you go to a theater and you watch a movie they achieve that by getting everything set up correctly and shooting at twice your frame rate we all are pretty familiar with these variable neutral density filters and those are they're pretty awesome the only downside to those well there's a couple downsides to those if you don't spend the money on a really good one the bad ones will give you a lot of issues with uh, refraction or you know it's basically what that is that that graduated neutral density that people use, it's basically two polarizers. And so when you twist those two mm. polarizers opposite, then it gets darker or lighter. And that gives you, that cuts the light that you need to get that neutral density effect. You're going to be way better off using a straight up neutral density filter. So you'd be way better off going with a 0.9 or a 1.2 or whatever you need to knock that light down. But then you don't have the variability, right? And the variability is kind of nice because if you're shooting video in a changing light situation, all you got to do is twist the end of that, that filter and you're going to get that change. If you really want to go pro for the pro tip, one of the cool ways to achieve it is I use this little cover. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the cover. And if, if you're not watching on YouTube, check the show notes because we'll put a link into this little product. It's like a rubber mat box essentially is what it is and it's set up to go to just slip on the end of your lens so you can slip it over your your lens hood 
or better yet, you want to slip it over the end of the lens. Take the lens hood off, and then you just slip this right over the end of your lens, and you can screw it on tight. This particular one is set up to accept 4-inch by 5-inch filters. But those filters are just one stop. They're not variable, so you can't get that adjustment. But once you put that on, then you're knocking the light down by whatever the filter is that you put on. So I have a 0.6, a 0.9, a 1.2... And that just re represents different stops of light. So if it's super bright out, I'm going to use 1.2. If I just need to cut the light by a little bit, I'm going to use a 0.6. And it's super easy to just have it in your bag loaded with a filter. And when you need it, you just put it on the end of the lens, make your adjustments in the camera to get twice the, the frame rate, and away you go. I like it a lot better than the variable neutral densities. As I said before, I've had refraction problems where if the light's just right coming in on the end of that filter, and a lot of times those variable neutral density filters are bigger than your lens hood. So sometimes you can't screw the filter on and then put your lens hood on. So now you've got light issues hitting that, that filter. And then I was shooting some shots. Actually, Missy was in a canoe one day out on a lake, and there was this big glacier in the background. It looked really awesome. And when we got back and looked at the footage and looked at the, the images, it had kind of a rainbow effect through it. And it was all generated by that filter. I kind of thought it was the camera at first, but, it, you know, I started talking to a lot of people that had had that same problem. And it's all built into that new graduated neutral density. Now, I think that is going to end up happening more on a very cheap graduated neutral density. So if you're spending 100 bucks or 200 bucks on a graduated neutral density, that might happen if you spend four or five or six hundred bucks on a graduated neutral density you're probably going to get good glass and it's probably not going to give you that issue potato potato i mean you just got to figure out what works for you but i really like having this system and i have three or four of these little rubber filter holders so i can have the 0.6 the 0.9 the 1.2 and then all i got to do is put it on the front of the lens and then i'm not messing around with any anything on the end of the lens i'm just setting my camera and i'm shooting and these filters are really high quality. You know, the last thing you want to do is spend 2000 bucks on a lens and put a $50 filter on the front of it. Yeah, don't yeah. put cheap glass on good glass. Exactly. Why buy a good good lens? You should just, you know, start out with a bad lens and not worry about it. So that's my pro tip. It's um, super effective if you want to shoot good video. So I got a couple questions for you. All right. Because uh, this is something I've always been curious about. And as I try to do more video while I'm in the field with my 500 millimeter prime, my D850, for example, do they even make neutral density filters that are the adjustable ones that'll yeah, fit can, that large of a lens? You can buy Sorry. a drop-in. Yeah, I, knew, you, I know about the drop-in. Yeah, so what, exactly what Ron was saying. It, you don't do it for the end of the lens. You'll use it for a drop-in, but they'll make those drop-in mm -hmm. filter holders that have a dial on it, mm -hmm. and they were originally made for a uh, polarizer so you could put a polarizer mm -hmm. in that drop in and then you can run that dial same sort of technology now you can just drop that in but i did the same thing there i didn't go with the graduated i have i bought three of those filter holders so if you if you guys aren't familiar with these big lenses like a 400 to 8 a 2 to 400 504 those lenses aren't really made for filters on the end those lenses have a filter tray or a filter holder that actually goes into the barrel of the lens down by the, the body of the camera. And you can buy just extra trays 
but they're really high quality filters and just depending on the light, I'll just drop in the amount that I need. And then I'm not messing with it, but I think the inside of it is a 40, 48? 48 or 53, depending on which manufacturer. Yeah, but with Canon, I could just go out and buy three of those filter holders and then I just carry mm-hmm. those around with me. And what you find in most situations, so when you're shooting video, if you're out there at daylight, you're not going to need neutral density till about an hour and a half into the day shoot. You know, your light's still soft enough early in the morning that you're able to achieve that 60th. If you're at 30 frames a second and you want a 60th of a second for your shutter speed, you're going to be fine until what, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock? And it isn't until then that you're going to want to start dropping those filters in. And then you're good for another, what, another hour or two. And then you're probably not going to want to shoot much anyways in the middle of the day. So you could probably get away with just one or two of those filter holders with maybe a 0.9 and a 1.2 and just call it good. But that's Mm. how I would do it. Interesting. And that's how I still do it today. When when I throw that big lens, my 2 to 400 on my RED camera, rather than using Mm -hmm. the system that I just talked about, I will still use the drop-ins just because it's easier, faster, less problems. I know I drop it in there and I'm good to go. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that's that. That's something I've always wondered about, and I've I've thought about you know coming up with a method to do it, and I I knew that tray was for that. I just never gone that extra step to actually look into it. So that's that's great. Thank you. The cool thing. They're not cheap either. No, they're not. <laughs> I'm sure. Nothing is. You know <laughs> what I've done is I've you know I've got some old like Canon lenses. I had a buddy mm-hmm. that dropped a 3028. Well, that same filter tray that goes in the 3028 goes in the 604, goes in the the 2 to 4. They're all the same tray. Uh-huh. So a lot of times you can find a filter tray that somebody had off an old lens. So you don't have to necessarily go buy yeah. a brand new one. Now, one more thing on the variable neutral density. Those are cool because you can use that a lot like adjusting your shutter speed. Right. So rather than mm-hmm. even messing with the camera, you can just lightly just twist that variable neutral density, depending on the look that you're trying to achieve with the light that you have. And so that's a benefit to having that variable because you can just adjust it as you go. So there's good and bad to mm-hmm. all of it. I would just say if you're getting serious about video and you want that look that looks cinematic, that just has that buttery kind of feel to it, it just is. If you think back to the early days of video cameras, or even if you watch the TV, well, even TV news now is using pretty good cameras. But back in the day, the TV news cameras, everything was in focus. If they were shooting a news conference, everything from front of the lens all the way to the infinity, everything's in focus and crisp and edges are all crisp. And that's really hard to tell a story if you're just trying to isolate. It's like what we talked about on the last podcast when we're trying to get that bokeh. That yeah, you'll get that bokeh if you use the neutral density properly with the right settings in your camera to shoot video. And you, you know, it's just, yeah. it's, huh. it's a so much more work, but it's so much fun when you get really good video. It is. Yeah. Yeah. The only, the only time I've ever used the neutral density and it's a graduated one I have for my 24 to 70 is just for landscape stuff and, you know, silky water, things like that. Yeah. Um, but, and I've had pretty good luck with it. You know, I spent a little more money on it. I think it was three or 400 bucks. Um, and, but I do know I get some, I don't know what they call the technical term. I got so much to learn when it comes to photography, but <laughs> I think when I, when I went too far, I think it was called banding. I got some banding in my images. Yep. 
Yeah, um, and I think it's where basically the it's gone past the point of where it's effective anymore or whatever. But I was going to say that's common with uh, like a circular polarizer as well. Yeah. If you don't have yeah. it kind of in the sweet spot, you're going to you're going to get that dark streak that's running through your image. And the yeah. the other thing is so like the the new Canon mirrorless system, so they have a new mount, the R mount for that Canon mirrorless system. But to be able to to utilize your old E-mount lenses, they've got um an adapter that has the ability to have drop-in filters in it as well so you don't have to have them on the end of your lens you can keep your lens shade on and just drop them in and, th and that can be used for any lens that you're adapting to the r mount i love that i mean that just cuts the amount of stuff that you have to take into well i guess it doesn't really you still got to take extra filter holders but it's a pretty smaller. cool yeah it's just smaller it's a smaller footprint but I was kind of excited, you know, Chaz actually talked about that in one of our earlier podcasts where he was talking about those drop-in filters, and my immediate thought was, that'd be kind of cool, because you're just dropping it in, you're not screwing anything on the end of the lens, and you still can keep your lens hood on there, and you don't have to mess around with it, and I'm kind of excited to see how that pans out. I'd, I would like to try mm -hmm. one of the EOS lenses on that R system with that adapter and see how that works. Very cool. All right, we beat that dead horse, but what's your uh, what's your pro tip, Jason? <laughs> well, just like with the um, the neutral density filter, learning the hard way, I I do that a lot. Like I was mentioning, I just I don't know what it is. I have to like learn things the hard way and pound it into my head and make the same mistake multiple times before I actually actually figure something out. And then I even still don't learn all the way. So, anyways, um, my pro tip is really has to do with I've had it's happened so many times throughout the the time I've been doing photography, and it just, like I said, I just can't seem to get it right. But just having enough, not just enough, but good charge batteries on you, and replacement cards on you at all times, and and I mean at all times because I don't know how many times it's happened where I, I'll I'll get out, I'll go for a walk, whatever, and I'll think ah, I've got a thousand images left, I I'm good. And I'll get out there, and then something crazy cool will happen, and I'll just start blasting away, and I run out of memory, and it's and and then I'm hosed. So, and I've had it happen where I've actually literally just had to stop shooting and and watch everybody else get images, and I'm just sitting there kicking myself, going, "What, you know?" And I know by the time I leave and try to go back to the vehicle or whatever, I'm just gonna I'm gonna miss it all. So, you know, it's time to just hang out or, you know, battery dies, same kind of situation, you know, and you wouldn't think it would happen that often and it doesn't happen a ton, but when it does happen, it just kills you and it's such a rookie mistake. So, so my pro tip is not just to have it on you. It's also about a little method I've used to make sure I have it with me and I've created a little, I mean, you could use a fanny pack. You could use, I think Mike, you just mentioned some kind of a little bag that you call haul around with your filters and that in it. But I actually, it's a buddy of mine, he he owns a company called Rut and Ready, and they make a little leg pouch, a hip leg pouch, and it hooks on your belt. And it's actually made for hunting, but it's got um, two upper pockets and then a larger lower pocket. And I actually just had mine customized. I cut the bottom off because I didn't think I needed the extra bottom piece. And that top piece is actually big enough to put in all my extra memory cards and a little uh, a little cleaning brush and uh, uh, you know, a cloth to wipe my lens down if I need to. And then it's got enough room for my business cards. It's got enough room for all um, extra batteries for each of my cameras that I'm hauling around. 
And I just, that has just now become my little, I just don't leave without it. I don't leave the vehicle without it. I don't go out in the field without it. And it's paid off, you know, in spades. I just, you know, I've always had what I need on me. And, you know, like I said, you could use whatever you want. It doesn't have to be, you know, a hip bag. It could be a backpack. It could be whatever, but just make it be something that you're always going to have on you when you step out of your vehicle or you, or you head into the field um, so that you don't have to learn the hard way like I do. <laughs> I think it's happened to everybody, right? And what you were just describing when you get to the end of your card and the thing's still going on and everybody's still shooting, you've got two choices. You got either go back to the car and get another card, which you know you're going to miss, just like you said, yep. or you yep. are quickly becoming an editor in the field and you're dialing through all your images and you're like, <laughs> oh, I could delete that. I could delete that. But by the time you get 30 images deleted, you know, how much time yeah. has passed and you're still missing everything that's going on. I think that's an excellent pro tip because there's just no excuse for it. These batteries are, are small enough nowadays and they, you know, it's easy to carry and the cards too. I mean, you just throw, even if you didn't have a bag, even if you just put them in your pocket for those two things, yeah, you've, yeah. you've got it. Yeah, absolutely. The thing that uh, has, has made it more of an issue is you, you have these, 500 gigabyte cards you can throw in your camera now you know the images if you were just taking stills it might not be that big a deal but where more and more people are switching back and forth and now you're recording 4k video on the same card uh, with some cameras some cameras you have two cards but that video fills them up quick and again you know you you get these unique opportunities the things that are going to set you apart as a photographer or videographer and now all of a sudden we're, we're done before it hits the peak of the action. So that's a great tip. I wish there was some kind of shock system. If you got too far from your, your <laughs> card carrier, it'd give you a little jolt. <laughs> uh, well, well, let me, let me put a caveat to that too, because actually I could think I can add to it a little bit. So what I've learned is if I, I have not once yet left my um, hotel room or my vehicle or wherever I'm at shooting for the day and i always have a battery grip on all my cameras because i want that extra power or that extra backup battery and if i leave my vehicle or the whatever with both batteries the battery grip and the camera charged fully with fresh bat with fresh batteries with fresh cards and i have a backup card and a backup battery i've never yet been in a situation where that wasn't enough to cover me with whatever was going on you know, I, even if it's just like you said, Mike, just throw an extra battery and a couple extra cards in your pocket. Just don't leave without at least that. And if you have a battery grip, even better, because you can have, you know, um, the extra power to, to make that last a little longer while you're in the field. Well, and just to tag onto that one little extra step, and this really plays into my commercial photography world and more commercial video world is you've got to remember to charge your batteries every night too, right? So we'll get into a situation mm -hmm. where we'll go through a ton of batteries when we're doing a commercial job. And we got to the point now where we have multiple chargers for every type of battery, because if you're sitting in a hotel room, the last thing you want to do is throw one battery on one battery charger and just sit there and then wait till it charges up, set an alarm. So you wake up at, you know, two hours later, change the battery out. That's another thing to <laughs> think about just to be proactive about the whole situation and, we all run on zero sleep anyway, so if any quality <laughs> sleep that you can get, 
that, you know, you're just going to perform so much better. So if you think about it and if you are running through a lot of batteries, getting those extra chargers really helps out. Yeah. 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 And then I will add that kind of just getting a little bit into my flow workflow, if you will, when I get home from a shoot, I like to try to empty my cards into the computer, get them onto the computer. And then I pull that card out and I put it back in my, in my SD carrier, my SD card carrier. And I do not format them right away. And I do that because I feel like for whatever reason, it's like an extra backup. I already back up all my images and we've talked about backup on the podcast before. But to me, it's if anything happens with my drives, I've still got that other backup until I go shoot again. So I've tried to get into the habit of when I when I put a card back in the camera and I'm going on a shoot, I always try to make sure I format it that morning and make sure that I've got empty cards and it's not something that I haven't already, you know, not loaded on the computer yet. But that's another mistake I've made multiple times is, you know, I'll get it out there and get in a hurry. And I, for whatever reason, I don't format them right away. The action happens and I start blasting images on that card because it still might have had a little bit of room on it. And now I've got a card that's two thirds of the way full and I've already started taking images on it and I can't format it now because now I've, I've just lost more memory um, options because now I've, maybe I only get 300 images on that card where I could have got a thousand images on that card. So just another little thing to think about. Everybody has their own workflow, but I think a lot of it just has to do with getting in a good habit of whatever works for you. Just stick with it and make sure that it becomes kind of a process for you. I can add to that too, because the same thing it's, it's, there's nothing worse than having that cards two thirds full and you get out and you shoot something in it. You know, if it's the beginning of the day with the prettiest light, if you're shooting something, chances are you don't want to delete that, right? So then you you do. Yeah. You end up giving up a whole card. And I guarantee you everybody's done that as well. I do like your thought process, though, of having that third backup until you actually shoot again. But then how do you get rid of that? Do you just say, okay, I'm going to start formatting the minute I have it in two places. I'm going to format it. That's kind of what I do yeah. just because it's but, – yeah. but I'm I still have issues. I still have issues with – you know, it's like, oh, yeah. did I put it on that drive? Is it on two drives? So <laughs> it's a workflow thing, and everybody's got their own workflow, but figure out what works. Yep. I thought I was the only one that had issues. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one, Jason. I think everybody can relate to that one. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> okay, so a couple of weeks ago, we got into exposure, and we kind of talked about how we expose for specifically in that podcast we talked about exposing for subjects that are on snow and how we go about doing that and we we got some good feedback on that podcast so tonight we wanted to talk a little bit about composition because we always get questions about you know how do you set your images apart and one of the ways that you can set your images apart quickly is by learning to compose in a in an artistic manner you know, it's it's a lot easier for a still image video. You're you're basically photographing motion, and things are going to change, and you can't always move the camera when you're uh, or taking some video. So we'll talk about still images first, and then Mike can jump in and and give us some tips on uh, composing for your video to make that stand out as well. And I think probably the first thing that comes to mind when you talk about composition with wildlife is talking about the rule of thirds, but 
Again, it's not necessarily a rule. There are times where you want to break it. But as we get into that, and we've talked about this before, and you can even put an overlay on your viewfinder on some cameras where you have it broken up in thirds. And so you kind of want to imagine your subject on one of those thirds. And with wildlife, a lot of times you don't want them necessarily centered. And I can think of several instances where, you know, you might, but a lot of times you want them off to either the right or right or left. Sometimes top, you're going to use that top and bottom third, depending on what the scenario is. But you want to get that animal on one of the thirds, either right or left third, looking into the scene. So you're kind of giving them space to basically give the viewer the opportunity to imagine what is going on in front of them, what they're looking at, where their attention is. You know, that's one of the things that immediately comes to mind that I see from people that can be fixed right now. A lot of, you know, images that people post, you're just not giving them any space. Or the photographer is afraid to utilize that negative space. There's just nothing going on, so it doesn't seem interesting, and and yet it can add to your image. Uh, what's the first thing you guys think of when you when you talk about composition? The first thing that came to mind when you were sitting there talking about this was, uh, you know, trying to do it in camera so I don't have to crop as much. Um, but you can crop, right? You can crop your composition and make up for some of the mistakes that or the lack of thought in the field, if you will. And that when you spoke about that graph that has the thirds in it, you can do that in camera. I think you actually can do that in Lightroom too until you, you kind of get yep. used to the feel of it, right? So you can use that as a tool to try to, you know, get your eye used to it if you're not used to it already. Um, but yeah, a lot of, for me, a lot of times I find myself not just using the top or the side. I find myself picking corners, you know, um, and I love the crop of a 16 by nine. I don't know why a lot of my images just it just it's just what appeals to me. I like that longer feel. I like I don't know it just works for me. Um, so anytime I get a chance, I kind of that's kind of my go-to crop. And I and when I'm doing that, I like it. If for example, if it's an elk bugling, and he's into he's looking into the scene, and I'll crop it that 16 by nine so that he's looking into the scene and have him on that bottom left corner, if you will, looking to the right um, and giving it some space there to create some. You know, create some drama or whatever, you know. And, and for me, when I think of cropping, you mentioned the rule of thirds, and it is not a rule, right? There's a lot of times you would break it. But what I've learned is I used to really worry about that at first when I first started, you know, doing this. I've learned, I think, to not be so concerned about that and just kind of trust my eye and just kind of trust when I'm playing with it what what looks good to me, what feels good to me. And there's been times where I've tried crops and it just just doesn't work. And there's been times when it's like, wow, that even though it's breaking the rule, it, it really seems to work for whatever reason. It it feels good. It looks good, you know. So I don't know. That's what comes to my mind off the top of my head. Peter McKinnon did a really good video. So you were talking about the the Lightroom overlays. Uh huh. He did a really good video on some tricks in Lightroom. 10 tips specifically for Lightroom. And one of the things that he talked about was the overlays. And we'll put a link to the, in the show notes to that video because I think he does a really good job of just demonstrating not only the tips that he's shown, but he also demonstrates the shortcuts so you can expedite your workflow uh, when you start to become more proficient with those shortcuts. But there's a complexity to 
the rule of thirds. And I don't want to get into that. That's not what we're going to talk about tonight. But there's, you know, there's also the what's called the golden spiral. And that's probably more realistic. And when you look at some of those images like you're talking about um, that just kind of feel good to your eye, mm-hmm. put them up against, use that golden spiral, which is in Lightroom. It's one of the overlays that you can use. And nine times out of 10, when I have a shot like you're, like you're explaining or describing mm-hmm. right now, nine times out of 10, when I put that golden spiral on, it just fits. Everything is just brought to that center. And that's kind of what leading lines is another thing. Yeah. So if you've got something that leads into your subject, whether it's a, a fence or whether it's striation in the rock, whether it's a, you know, a mountainside that's kind of coming down, leading into where your subject is, you know, that horizon line, mm-hmm. utilizing leading lines, a lot of times it, it makes the composition for you. It adds to it. So yeah. that's that's another thing that I'll do. And a lot of times when you look at that golden triangle, that's golden you want to lead into your or golden spiral, not triangle. <laughs> do not go to the golden triangle. <laughs> a lot of it's leading. Everything's leading into that central subject or leading into that subject's eye or behavior, whatever the case may be. Well, if you watch that video that you're referencing with Peter, you can just toggle when you get the the thirds up in Lightroom. It's and I don't know what mm-hmm. the the key is, but you can just toggle through, and it gives you all kinds of different little overlays that yeah, it gives you allows you how to yeah. dial that in. So just watch that video, and you'll pick up on it really fast, and you can figure out how that works. But what we need to talk about, and I think the biggest culprit, the biggest reason why composition is done after the fact and not necessarily done in the camera, is I don't think enough people are moving their focus point around. So if you just are leaving that focus point in the center and you are relying 100% on autofocus, your your image is always going to be center punch. Whatever you're shooting is center. And that's fine if you're tight on an image. If you're shooting a portrait of anything, dead center is fine. It works. But if you are out of ways and you've got a scene going on, eight times out of 10, you don't want that thing dead centered. It's just going to look funny. And that all you have to do is get in the habit of moving that focus point around, then your autofocus still works because I think that's the problem, right? I don't think people just like punch autofocus, boom, I got up sharp, take the picture, and everything's going to be dead center, and I'll I'll fix that when I get back and do it in in Lightroom. I'm moving that focus point as much as I'm hitting autofocus. When I'm shooting an image, that focus point is going all the time. And I've just got so in tune with it and in fact i like the sony system so much better than the canon system because the canon you have to activate that focus point so you have to hit a button then you can go toggle and move it around whereas with the sony you can toggle that focus point at any time you don't have to go hit another button to activate it which saves you a millisecond you know the people that have to hit the button and then go move their focus point that millisecond could miss that shot of that pica running over the tundra with a mouthful of hay or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's so critical. And I think there's just not enough people that move that thing around and compose your shot by doing that. And there's several ways to do it. We've talked a lot on this podcast about back button focus and shutter button mm-hmm. focus. And I think Mark and Chaz, if you guys remember back to those episodes, Chaz was, he was a shutter button focuser. And I've never been that. I've always been the back button. But you look at the logic behind the shutter button, to me, that makes more sense. It's faster. So if you are a, 
a prolific shooter and you're just constantly trying to move that focus point around, it's much better to have your finger on the trigger all the time. That focus is being engaged and then you're still moving your focus point. Whereas if you are a back button focuser, you can't move that focus button around because you got to hit the back button focus, right? So yeah. uh, to me, that's the biggest culprit. And I think if you just, you're going to miss shots in the beginning to figure it out. But if you figure it out, you're going to be so much happier. And it's so much easier to compose that based on the rule of thirds or based on your spiral, uh, golden spiral or whatever you said, golden triangle. <laughs> don't get that don't get that stuck in my head or it'll be all night <laughs> the, the other thing that I, I had to add to that was composition depends on what you're shooting for too right if you want to make it in the editorial world let's right. say you want to yeah. sell the magazines there's a, a bunch of different compositions that you're constantly got to be paying attention to if you want a cover shot you're going to have to shoot vertical well, nowadays you may not have to because these cameras are so good now that you can actually crop a vertical out if you wanted to because the file sizes are so big. It's best if you go vertical and then you compose that shot, but you're thinking about the masthead. You're thinking about the title of the magazine. You're thinking about the left side or the right side where they might put all the little things in the magazine that are going to appear, all the articles. You know, So you got to kind of compose for that. If you're looking for an inside shot, let's say you want to sell a picture to the inside of a magazine where it's running two pages. A double truck is what they call it. If you want to do that, sometimes you want to break that rule of thirds or not necessarily break the rule of thirds, but you know, oftentimes we'll talk about an animal looking into the frame. They want to look where there's space. You want to see where that animal's looking. So you want to see if an animal's looking right to left, on the left side, you're leaving a bunch of space open so the viewer can see what that animal's looking at. But if you're going to do a double page spread, it may not matter which way the animal's looking because that all that open space that's left open might be where the article goes or where all the text goes. So composition yeah. is a total different thing there. So you really got to kind of figure out what you're shooting for. If you're shooting for a really pretty picture on the wall, rule of thirds is the way to go. If you're going to try to make it in the editorial world which is kind of dying off but then not even so let's take it one step further let's say editorial is dying off and there's not as many sales that you can make in that world these days we're still dealing with web banners and all these little ads that you see on the web and there's all these common sizes that people use images for so then you got to start looking at those images that appear on web pages and you say okay well i need to shoot this in this way and Jason, what you were talking about with that long, skinny panorama type feel, that works. That's very appealing for someone on a web page, right? Because they can feel a lot of space on the top of the, the page. So just think about that kind of stuff when you're composing images too, because it really depends. So so real quick, I'll just add, um, thinking about your shot, right? I mean, I, you're right, 100%. It's, I've got a good example of that. So I started working with a guy, um, it's Cirrus Gear, and he makes um, gun mats. And um, we worked on some wildlife images for those gun mats, and it was kind of a cool little project. And the trick was, I'm trying to remember the actual crops, but I think he needed images that were cropped like 14 by 48, right? Because he's making the, uh, basically it's a mouse pad material, but it's the full length of a rifle or a shotgun. So you can lay your um, weapon down on there and have it be cushioned and while you're cleaning and stuff, right? And I, so when I first started working with him, it was just like going through my images and trying to find ones that I could crop that way that would work. But then as I worked with him for a year or two, 
as I was out in the field, I found myself thinking about that and looking at that crop thinking, oh, here's an opportunity I can, you know, that would be perfect crop for that kind of a mat or something, right? And then I find myself thinking about crops for calendars because I do some calendar work. And I find myself thinking about crops for covers, you know, on and on and on, right? So it is, it's kind of, it's crazy that all the, the thought process has to go in. And, and I guess my point was just going to be, and you said it basically, right, Mike, but you got to go into the field, not just think about your crops, but thinking about the images you want to get. And I know it's been talked about before, but that is so super critical. If you're just going out there blasting away and, and spraying and praying, you might end up with a couple of good shots, a couple of good images. But, you know, if you're more intentional, you can walk away from a shoot with multiple different crops of the same image, even potentially, um, that'll all work for different scenarios, you know, and that that's, you know, where you can be more value added to different uh, media. Yep. And that's, that's where I was going to go next. You know, Mark used to always talk about, uh, working the situation, working the scenario. Yes. I know we've talked about this, but this fits right into the composition subject that we're talking about or topic that we're, that we're on is change your composition. So once you've got the shot, don't take 400 more of the same shot, switch it up, you know, zoom out, create more space, look right, look left. If you're shooting horizontal, switch to vertical, you know, create some different things for yourself. If you're fortunate enough to have that pica that's loping through the rock slide with the hay or, or better yet, wildflowers in its mouth, and it keeps coming back out to the same spot to gather more and going back in. So you have time. You have time to shoot this thing every way you can possibly imagine. So make sure that you're doing that. You're not just sitting in the same spot. You know, it doesn't matter how experienced you are. You can get sucked into this. Sit in the same spot, same composition, you know, maybe waiting for different light, that kind of thing. But you don't have to move far. Move six feet. Just get a different angle. Change your perspective. If you're shooting at, you know, below eye level, try to work into a position where you can get at eye level or maybe a little bit above. You don't want to... I don't like shooting down on subjects too much, especially something small like the pica or waterfowl, that kind of thing, because you kind of take away from your subject. Make sure that you're varying things up. You're not just shooting the same thing over and over and over again. Otherwise, you're going to go home with the same shot and you're going to end up deleting thousand good images when you could have had, you know, 200 to select from four or five different angles or or crops or or scenes. If you're going to key in on one yeah. thing that you just said, Ron, I think that the number one thing there is, well, there's more than one, but the other thing that people don't do is where are you going to shoot? You need to be below that animal. You need to be below their eyes. So if you're shooting a coyote, you should be laying on the ground. If you're going to shoot a, a bear and it's hard, some of the, you know, when you're shooting a predator, it's not like you can go crawling around on the ground and stuff, but Try to put yourself in those positions. Or if you see a bear that's walking in this direction and you see a hill off over there and you think, oh, that bear might come up and over that hill. If you can scoot down wherever you need to be to shoot up towards the bear, that's going to be a way better shot than if you're, you know, just trying to follow this bear and you're shooting a side profile shot and it's just nothing that's that's really appealing to people. So think about that too. And it doesn't matter if it's an elk, if it's a predator, if it's a... Pika, if I'm going to shoot a pika, I want to be, I want my camera laying on the ground. You know, I'm going to be shooting profile, yeah. just laying flat as I can get with a, probably a big lens. 
and just looking at those little pathways where you said run they lope along you know and you're just going to key in on those spots where you can just get right down on that level same with ducks same with waterfowl it's that you take an image of a duck where you're standing up and you're shooting onto the water and then take that same image of that same duck if you can get right down on water level night and day difference and you'll just be totally blown away by what you get if you can get on that level of whatever you're shooting uh some good examples of this and i'll i'll give him a shout out but jamin hunter i think it's just jay hunter on instagram look at some of his waterfowl work and and there's a lot of a lot of good photographers out there but he's one he's got some uh loon shots that he's right down at water level and just the difference that that makes in an image is night and day. It sets you apart from, you know, elite, or if you're on a one to 10 system from being a 10 to a four or five, just kind of an also ran. And I think that's important with, with waterfowl, but like you were talking about with, with predators and small mammals also. Right. The other thing that I would add is a complete other end of the spectrum it's not bad to go complete artsy fartsy either, right? So if you can totally break all the rules and you can end up with a kind of a cool shot, but it's not going to really have a purpose. I don't know. I, what would you say? It could be something that captures somebody's imagination more than anything. And those images right. kind of work, you know, and, but that's breaking every rule that we're talking about out there. It's like, you're not doing rule of thirds. You're not, you know, you, it's just, <laughs> it's different all the way around, but that's a style. So then this composition becomes a stylistic kind of thing. And I know photographers out there that, you know, pros that make their living just by being different like that, because everybody is so accustomed to seeing the same thing. You know, we all, we all see an elk on the side of the road. We probably all have the same image in our mind. Oh, I got to get that shot. And we all get it. Well, what's going to set you apart from everybody else that's there. You need to start thinking different. So, Maybe it is doing something completely out of the norm. Or I think, Jason, you talked about it the other day. Did we talk about that the other day where you have too big of a lens and the animal yeah, gets closer and closer did. and closer yeah. and it's the crops that you end up having to do just because out of necessity because, well, okay, I'm going to get this eyeball and this part of the antler and maybe half of the nose and yep. hopefully that works. you know. But that it's probably going to be something that's your own and not a lot of other people have that shot at that moment. So comp yeah. compositionally that works, but there's no yeah. right or wrong to any of this. It's just nope. get good at the rules and then figure out how to break them in a creative way. You know, to move on to another thing, and this, this does turn into more of an artistic feel is learning to frame your subject and you can use trees, you can use rocks, I got an image last last spring. We were up uh, in Colorado, central Colorado, photographing mountain goats, and the clouds are just going crazy. And so these goats kind of bailed off this cliff face and then worked down this ridgeline. So you're shooting way downhill. So it's not typically a shot that I would spend much time trying to work with. But all of a sudden, the clouds started moving thick, and this circle of clouds kind of started to come around this mountainside and can't kind of run down this point. And I could see as I'm looking down the hill, I could see that that circle is going to come right over the top of this goat who was standing, kind of looking off into the valley. And so I just waited and waited and waited. And right when that circle opened up 
over the top of that goat. So the goat is framed in that circle of clouds. I'm shooting downhill, but it, it didn't matter with this shot because, number one, the light was crazy. And number two, those clouds had it framed perfectly. And the full cloud was in the frame of the composition. So you could kind of see what was happening. And so that, that kind of made the shot. But I see people use trees a lot, even, you know, like uh, driftwood. And you kind of position yourself to where you're shooting through the driftwood. And the driftwood might be close enough that it's not going to be in focus at all. You can't even really tell what it is necessarily. But it frames your subject and it basically just gives people no way to misinterpret what the main subject of your image is. It just draws attention right to it. And so using those framing elements, I think, too, can be a good compositional tip. And I know you guys both do that often, but... Yeah, I think that, that fits with that golden circle, <laughs> not circle, spiral. Spiral, yeah. <laughs> golden spiral concept, right? I mean, it really does. I think I, I, try, I like it. I think it's unique. I try to do it as much as I can. Um, sometimes it works well. Sometimes I've done it, tried it multiple times, and it just, you know, just doesn't doesn't look good to me but it's always fun to try right back to our whole original conversation of just try different things try different compositions on that yellowstone trip on the coach i actually had that with a coyote and there was a tree the coyote was on the side of a hill and i got plenty of images of him on the hill laying in the snow standing up blah 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 so i figured you know what i'm just going to take a minute there's this, this pine tree here i'm going to try to go get around there and try to frame him with this pine tree to your point ron and you couldn't tell it was a pine tree from, you know, because it was so close and it was blurry. But, and those are the images that I said actually didn't work. But why not try, right? You're there. You got the time. If things are there, you've got the shots you want. Start being real creative, man. Do something different, like you said, Mike, you know. Yep. It's a good time to do it. And you never know unless you try. So you'll never know. You'll never start figuring out the things that work well and the circumstances that you were in that that lent themselves to work well unless you start trying that stuff and seeing what your results are. Yeah, and I think those circumstances that you're talking about occur quite a bit. So if you can figure out what those are and you have it happen this day and then the next day, oh, well, different animal, different topography, but same set of circumstances, and that turned out pretty cool. I'm going to try it here. You just got to keep doing it. Just give it a go. And Yeah, and just real quick before, I know you have another uh, point to make, Mike, but um... – I'm a back button guy. And when I actually listened to the podcast, when you guys were talking about, you know, using the focal point instead of using the back button and going back to, I was like, this is insane. These guys, <laughs> no, I just barely got used to shooting with my back button and I love it. You know, I love the freedom of being able to just hit, hit leave my focus button in the center. I compose, hit my focus button, compose and shoot. You know, it's, it works beautiful. And it does work for the most part, but when stuff starts getting crazy, I guess what I'm learning is that the it, that's when it that's when it matters, because when things start to go down fast, now all of a sudden you find yourself all you're doing is centered, and your animals in the center, and you're just blasting away because you have to be in order to be focused. So back to that original topic of comp composition, you know, I'm learning that it's really important that maybe that's a better way to shoot because now I can. And why does it matter? Why does it matter if these cameras have such big sensors and so many megapixels now? Why don't I just crop after? But your your mindset should be to try to get that in camera. And the less you have to crop after, the more you nail it up front, the, the more data you have in your image and the larger you can print your file and so on and so forth, right? So I think that's why it kind of matters. Plus, 
I think it really forces you to be more creative in the field. And, you know, I think my goal is to try to get as much as I can right in camera, in the field, so I have as little or less work to do in post. You know, so I don't know, just some of my thoughts that I was thinking about as we, we talked about. So I've been thinking more and more about, you know, using that, um, moving my point around more than I have been in the past. But Most cameras you can set up both ways, Jason. So you can have your uh, shutter actuator. You can have that release set to focus, but you can yep. also have your back button set to focus. And so you can do it both ways. Now, if you use your back button, then that locks focus. So you can recompose. Yeah. Uh, if you use your shutter release, you release it, you are going to have to focus again. But I think you're, you kind of hit on it. The reason that I do, that I use the toggle is because number one, you want to get it right in camera. Number two, you are losing focus. Yeah. If that subject moves, if you've, if you've focused and recomposed and now all of a sudden the subject turns and is coming toward you. Yeah you've lost the the focal plane. So you've got to reacquire and do everything all over again. So well, that's, that's when you panic that's the and center advantage. it and just blast away. And you crop in no, the that's... computer. You just like, I'll fix yeah, it. And then post. you crop in the computer and go, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, you know, the way I approach that, cause I was always a back button person too. And I think it was because these older cameras, it was either, or it wasn't, you could have both. Now the newer cameras that you can have both. So when I picked up that Sony last summer, just to try it out, I left that camera with, with the trigger or with the, what'd you call it? The shutter, shutter actuation, shutter, shutter, shutter actuator, thingy my duty. Yeah, yeah. So I left it. So <laughs> I've gotten used to on the Sony just doing that. I haven't switched my Canon over to it yet, but I think I will. As far as video, I don't know. You guys want to go any further on the still stuff? I don't have anything else to add. No, I was just going to ask you what, you know, video-wise, what suggestions do you have? So for video, you always got to look at it as telling a story, right? If I think I'm rolling into a situation where I'm going to have a little bit of time, the first thing is, is I'll get the subject and I'll try to get it tight and I'll try to get that portrait shot because that's going to be the the focal of this whole little story is I just got to kind of show this animal as close and as, as pure as I can show it using the same compositional structure that I would use in a still image. And then after that, what I'll do is you got to think wide, medium, and tight. And then you've got to think about other storytelling elements. You got to think about transitions. You got to think about all these different things that come into play when, cause you're not going to rely on just one image. You're going to rely on a bunch of one images to kind of put it all together to, to show people this is what we saw, this is what went down, this is how the animal acts. I'll get the wide shot, so I want to put that animal in perspective. And sometimes it's kind of hard, right? Because if you just have one lens on your video camera, you know, chances are I'm going to have a zoom. But I'll get as wide as I can. I'll show as much habitat, and it might be just a little small animal in the, in the frame. And I'll shoot it where I'll just be stationary and just let it be. Then I might just do a pan from left to right, especially if the animal's steady. If it's staying in one spot, I might left justify the animal and then I'll pan to the left and then right justify the animal all in the same shot. Then I'll go for my medium shot and I'll do a bunch of different variations. If This is all if you got time, right? This is why wildlife video is so hard. And when you watch a program like Planet Earth where you're just so blown away, you're like, how do they do that? It's just so much time because a lot of times with wild animals, you just don't have a lot of time. Now, if you're shooting a big 
uh, you know, if you shoot an elk in the rut, chances are you're going to have time, you know, just cause there's so many elk and there's so many situations and you can do it for three or four or five days and you're probably going to get enough to put everything together to tell a really good story. But you think wide, you think medium, you think tight. Then once you have all that, then let's say the animal's walking. Well, sometimes I want to follow a walking, but sometimes I'm just going to focus on the hooves, you know, just cause I want to see that, how they walk. Cause that's part of that story. And then I'm going to just shoot just their head and you know are they moving around are their ears moving around I'm, I'm telling that this is a lot of stuff to get in a short amount of time and then the other thing you want to do is a lot of times what you find with people brand new to video cameras is it's just that camera's on and it's moving all the time it's just constantly like following whatever it is following sometimes you just want to start and you might start panning with an animal if it's walking but at a certain point you want to stop the camera and you can let that animal walk right out of the frame and what that does is it provides a cut point to go to that next shot. Because a lot of times you'll have, if they're walking and you're just following it and panning and panning and panning, what's the transition? How can you get a transition out of that shot to the next shot? So, I mean, there's just way more than this. These are just like little basics, but it's, you can see that there's just a lot of stuff to think about. And then, you know, nowadays on Instagram, if you're going to throw up a little video, you got 60 seconds to tell that story and try to put in that whole, in that 60 seconds, you got to be able to show as much as you can. And it's, it takes a lot. Right. Agreed. That's the most difficult thing for me is I try to do more and more video. You know, I, I get myself stuck in, I, I kind of get myself stuck in that same rut that you get stuck in with a shot. If you've got a great shot, a great composition, great behavior going on, it's hard to get yourself to shoot vertical instead of horizontal. Or it's hard to get yourself to change that composition at all because you're worried you might, you know, miss something else. And with video, it's hard to break myself away from having that whole animal in the scene or even, you know, even a little bit wider to show the environment. But it's hard for me to focus in on that small detail when and and so a lot of times I'll miss that as part of that storytelling element and it's you know it's no different with with stills yeah you have to work the scene get get everything one little trick that I do if I know I'm only gonna have so much time with this animal and I'm gonna try to get as much as I can I'll get as many of those elements a wide a medium a tight some really super tights to highlight parts of the animal if I can get all that and then it's over with, that's when I'll go get all these little pickups. You know, if I want to show that the wind was blowing, I'm going to go over and shoot some grass or some flowers that are fluttering in the wind. Or if I want to show that there were, you know, tons of mosquitoes and these, these animals are just dealing with all these other elements in, the, in their world, I'll try to find a little, you know, massive mosquitoes flying around and get the right light so that you can see them. Or I might, you know, just all those little elements that don't necessarily need to be shot right when you're shooting whatever you're shooting, but you just got to make these mental notes that, oh, this would be great to help tell this story. Or, you know, shoot a stream to show if you've got, the, you know, you have to enter into this whole other world of audio with video too, right? And audio tells just as much of the story as the video does. So now you're paying attention to that. And let's say, you're, you know, we had a situation where we were shooting moose earlier this year and this moose walks down and crosses a river. Well, I know I have to get audio for that river and I, ha I should probably get some close-ups of just the water and just try to show people how deep it was or 
but it was cold. Is it coming out of a glacier or is it coming just out of a spring or what is the deal? And, you know, there's all these other little things that you're just constantly making metal notes. And and sometimes you don't need to even do that same day. If you're working on a, a project, you might be in a place for a week. Just keep those metal notes there and, and you you can think back to, oh, you know, that bear was in those that similar kind of tree or habitat. I'm going to shoot just little elements of that habitat that help me tell this story later when I go put this together in the edit. So the problem is I have to to take those mental notes and get them down somewhere else because my mental note keeper (laughs) is not what it once was. (laughs) I know I, it's so hard. You know, there, I can't tell you how many times you get back and you think, Oh, I got so much cool stuff and I'm going to tell this really great story. And there's always those one or two or three shots that you miss. So I'll end up going into the files, and fortunately I've been shooting long enough where I can probably find, you know, something, you know, a bird on a branch or something just to cut to that's just a little different, but it's true to that scene or it's true to what was happening. It just may not have happened when I was shooting it. And it's almost impossible unless you got three or four camera people that are shooting. You know, if that's the situation, if you got three or four people, we do it all the time on these commercial shoots where I'll, I'll look at, you know, some of the crew and I'll be like, okay, you're shooting wide. You're shooting tight. I'm going to take all the action. And then this person, you focus in on the audio. And then if we're limited on time, that's how we do it. And then we know we've just got it. And then it cuts together so much easier too, because it's all congruent, right? But Mm -hmm. there's a million ways to skin the cat and you just got to figure out what works for you. But for what we're doing and for today's world and for people that are just getting into it, I mean, if you can just get that one killer shot, what I would say is just treat it just like a still. And I think I've said it on this podcast before. Still shooters that turn into videographers are always way better than videographers that try to turn into a still shooter. So I think if you come with a, a good base and you come with the ability to compose something in a still image and tell that story in one single frame, you're going to be way better at shooting video than someone that's trying to go the other way. And like I said, for today's world, if you're going to throw up a really cool little video chunk, it's fine on Instagram. You don't need all those other little elements. You don't need to tell this whole other story. You can just tell a cool little story, a cool little 30-second clip of a a pica would be awesome. You know, and, and it's probably something that a lot of people have never seen before. Yeah, I know for me, I'm just... Uh... I'm just pushing that record button, <laughs> but right now I've got a lot to learn when it comes to the video, but, but I will say there's another supporting reason to move that toggle around and try to crop your, or try to get your composition right in camera because you got a lot less opportunity to do that with video after the fact, right? Right. So if, if you, if you want to make at some point, make that transition and, or learn how to do that, then even better to be thinking that way and not rely on your post-processing to crop your images because you'll have, you'll have that eye when you start doing video too. So, yeah. Now the one difficult thing about shooting video, number one, you always got to have a tripod, which that eliminates a huge part of the still shooters out there because the trend now is to not use a tripod. So a lot of people are out there and you know, they're just hand holding and that generally doesn't work. Sometimes it, if you're really good and you're really steady and the wind's not blowing and blah, 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 and you got a really good camera with a good vibration reduction system in it, you might get something that's usable. But number one, you got to have a tripod. And then the, the other thing that's bad about shooting or different about, it's not bad at all. The difference about shooting stills and video is 
you're not shooting for composition through a viewfinder or an eyepiece. Now you're using the back of the camera. So then it's a mm -hmm. whole nother thing because you're going to probably use autofocus in most cameras. And then you're tapping on that screen to kind of set where the autofocus is at. So sometimes it's a little easier to compose on the back of the screen with just touching the screen where you want the focus to hit. It, you know, you don't have to be moving your toggle switch around to get that focus point where you want it to go. With video, you just touch the screen. The problem with wildlife is those autofocus systems are working on contrast. And a lot of times there's not enough yeah. contrast with the brown bear with brown trees and brown grass and you know you'll have that problem where it's searching for focus so then you got to go to manual focus flip it to manual focus and try to try to dial it in as best you can and that's hard to do so it's a it's a yeah. different mindset but if you follow all those suggestions and you've got time once you've accomplished everything with stills that might be the time to flip it over to video and run three yeah. or four clips of video that's what i've been doing i just try to do that as much as possible when i'm in the field you know just try to always get a little bit of video of everything that i'm experiencing that you know and just play with it learn that's how you learn right that's how i learned photography <laughs> was getting out and doing it so that's i'm gonna learn how to do video too obviously with you know with help from other people obviously that helps too but you know it really is just a mindset difference too right shooting video and you guys have talked about it multiple times but I'm blown away at the mindset difference it is to shoot video. It's just such a different mindset. I mean, you know, the mechanics are very similar and all those kinds of things. And when you understand the basics of a camera and how to, you know, push the record button and how to compose, I think, you know, it helps a ton. But even then, like you said, just trying to get all the pieces of the puzzle and tell the whole story, you know, you're trying to do that with an image, you know, when you're taking stills. With a video, it's it's a whole nother ball game, boy. It's just amazing to me how much of a mindset shift it is to do video. So the little bit I've tried to do it, it's just like I said, I'm just basically pushing play right now or pushing record right now. So well, and I think that's valuable to be able to do that, right? Because you still might get something that is just so awesome that you why not shoot it? I think that comment definitely needs to needs to be heard. And the other the other issue with that is. You know, now not only do you have to tell the story with a single image, but we're talking about, you know, most people are seeing these images on Instagram or on social media. And you've done well if you can captivate somebody's attention for a couple seconds. And now you look yep. at telling that story with video, and not only do you have to catch their attention to begin with, but you've got to captivate or capture that attention for for a minute or in some of these shows for 30 minutes. And that's why, you know, Planet Earth or Blue Planet or you think about, you know, any of these Nat Geo shows. If you look at it, I mean, these guys have conquered the world because they are capturing your attention not only for the hour that you're watching, but they're also leaving you thirsty for more. And they always yeah. leave me, you know, wanting to be in those situations. And I think that's, that's when you know you're dealing with a good videographer when they can, they can capture you, take you there, keep you there and then make you hungry enough to want to want to go see it for yourself. You know, if, if anybody has, well, if anybody has, everybody has Netflix or most everybody has Netflix. 
on Netflix, I think there's a program called, I think it's on Netflix. I think it's called, or I know it's called Our Planet. I don't know if you guys watch that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, yep. You sent me that, and that was. So what I like watching more than that is I like watching the making of. And if you dig through, you know, sometimes on, like on Netflix, they'll put episodes and more. And it won't be listed. If you just watch all the episodes, which you got to watch and they're cool, but you're seeing all the just the perfect everything, right? But if you dig down through that episodes and more, you'll find the behind the scenes of our planet. That is so much fun for someone like me to watch because I just want to see how did they do that? What was the situation? How long did that person stay there? And they'll say, oh, well, we sent this person here for 30 days or 45 days sitting in this little box because we were hoping we could get one shot of a tiger. You know, it's amazing how much time. And those guys have the budgets to captivate us, and, and it works. And I think there's nothing more powerful than the natural world when it's done right. The best way to learn is to do it. We've had multiple guests say that. We've all said it, and it really is true. Just get out and do it. So, Yep, I agree 100% with that. That's a good wrap. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We got a windows down, driving down the 405. To the radio Mm-mm. We're gonna make it someday Nothing's gonna get in our way We will be the biggest band in town